0: first of the two talks is by Jason Farley, who's, as you met earlier, he's at Johns Hopkins University, he's got a PhD in nursing and in the School of Nursing there also has an MPH, has done a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, but also works at the uh, HIV clinic there, I guess, uh, the Bartlett Clinic, right, and, um, and has had a special interest in MRSA both its diagnosis and treatment. And uh, so we're very pleased to have him here to talk about MRSA uh, with its prevalence and increased morbidity and mortality. Um, and I feel like I want to go USA, USA, but that's gonna yeah. be too much right.
1: Um. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Good to be back. Um, so antimicrobial resistant pathogens in patients with HIV is kind of the way I would describe uh, a lot of the work that I do. So um, drug-resistant TB in South Africa and antimicrobial-resistant organisms uh, in the US. No relevant financial um, disclosures for MRSA. Okay, a variety of, of, of objectives that you can look through, but we're gonna do a little bit of compare and contrast of the evolving epidemiology of MRSA, particularly since around 2009 when we began to see that decline in in MRSA skin and soft tissue infections. Okay, so what would you say the estimated US population prevalence of MRSA colonization is? Less than five, less than one, less than eight or greater than 10%. It's colonization. So pay close attention to that. Greater than 10%. Okay. So we, we've got a learning opportunity. Um, so so we'll actually come back to this point a, a little bit later in the talk. Interestingly enough, the two correct answers, there's actually two on the slide, depending on what data you reference, are actually the two least frequently voted upon uh, answers on this particular slide. So if we've got a skin and soft tissue infection, and we believe MRSA is within the organism differential for this agent, how do we, what is your preferred management style for such infections? Would you say it's incision and drainage with no need for antibiotics? Clindamycin with incision and drainage, linazolid with incision and drainage, or a tetracycline with incision and drainage?
0: Okay. Clinda with IND.
1: Great. So let's go forward with a case. So this is a patient of mine in my HIV practice. He comes into you for his specialty HIV care. He has a primary care provider, um, but notes he thinks his foot is just hurting really badly. He didn't go see his PCP as he was supposed to follow up um, in his office. And now he can see that it's didn't have time to get to that appointment anyway. And when was that last foot evaluated? And he says it was two to three weeks ago when he had a problem first notice with his foot hurting really badly. He is a 51-year-old male, works as a maintenance man, so wears really thick, hard boots all the time as he's working. Um, HIV is well-controlled, CD4 counts 578. He has viral suppression. He has type type 2 diabetes, which is well-controlled. Hemoglobin A1C, more close to six, um, but sometimes ranging up to seven. Hyperlipidemia, his LDL is 74. He has GERD. Renal insufficiency that's improved with time, creatinine is now 1.2 and his GFR is greater than 60. Stage one hypertension and obesity with a BMI of 30. So kind of similar picture to many of our patients that we see in in our practices today. So he has pain and swelling to his foot um, that began in November. He presented to the emergency department first and was started on an IV with clindamycin in the ER, uh, then switched to P.O. clinda and ciprofloxacin to extend coverage um, with the fluoroquinolone. Um, He is a diabetic, and so that's one of the main reasons they added the fluoroquinolone. X-ray revealed no osteomyelitis in the ER, a really important finding. Since that visit, two to three weeks ago, he, as he estimates, pain increased, swelling has worsened, his toenail on his third middle toe has come off. He's now having fever at night um, and he's starting to have difficulties with ambulation. Um, He was attempted to follow up with his PCP, but says he was unable to get an appointment, wasn't able to make that appointment. And here is his toe on presentation. This is his actual toe, photo used with permission. You can see the third digit um, markedly swollen there, Uh, no missing toenail, evidence of of clear cellulitis, most likely um, underlying fluctuants. Here is his original foot x-ray that you can see there, which is probably hard to see from your angle and perspective. There's a little bit better view. It's hard to again, see, hopefully I can, but we're not working pointer. That's okay. But you can see the third digit there, you've got some loss of bony prominence. And when we move on and blow it up a little bit more, you can see that we actually lose the bone completely in between his PIP and his middle foot there. So this was a marked erosion and demineralization uh, of both the distal phalanges of the third toe appearing since the prior exam. This was two weeks later, the evolution, uh, consistent with osteomyelitis, um, soft tissue swelling and irregularity of the dorsal, of the metatarsal with um, swelling of the left foot on X-ray. So he has osteomyelitis of the third toe. He obviously needs uh, a workup for admission. Um, CBC with differential, and you can see the regular labs there. And when he presented, his CRP was well over 10. Marked evidence of infection, um, and through that admission, um, he is identified through both NARI's surveillance cultures to be colonized with MRSA, and his wound culture is positive for MRSA skin and soft tissue infection. And for those of you who can't see it in the back, it shows that it has trimethoprim-sulfamethoxazole susceptibility, clindamycin susceptibility, uh, as well as vancomycin and tetracycline susceptibility on this particular um, antibiogram. So with staph aureus, so we know that both staph and strep as gram-positive organisms are the most common cause of skin and soft tissue infection. Um, so when we're thinking, um, hearing horses, we, we, we should think horses, but we are seeing a, a significant amount of evolution. It's no, no, um, um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not surprising that opioid use disorder comes right after this, this specific talk, because this pretty much leads largely, we see lots of skin and soft tissue infection in our patients who are, are substance, uh, um, people engaged in substance use, as well as. Um, increasingly mixed flora in those organisms, so both gram-positive and gram-negative in, in those swabs. But, but here we have gram-positive coccyne cluster classically seen there on, uh, under the microscope, capable of colonizing or infecting the host. We see it in both MSSA and MRSA, and transmission occurs through direct skin-to-skin contact as well as contaminated fomites or environmental surfaces. So anyone who's engaged in group or crowded living conditions is certainly someone who has increased risk um, our particular, um, individual did not, but he was a maintenance man in a, um, housing, uh, unit that had multiple individuals at very high risk of, of MRSA and, and, and subsequent, um, skin and soft tissue infection through substance abuse. So we had direct contact with that environment. So we can see through a variety of different uh, pathologic mechanisms that we can see MRSA causes a variety of different types of infection and disease and clinical pathology. And I'll just leave that up just for a second. Um, We are gonna be focused on the skin and soft tissue variety of of this diagram here. But just reminding us all that when in doubt, when we think about skin and soft tissue infection, MRSA should be at the top of our differential for patients. Uh, with HIV. So just as a reminder of the evolution of community-associated MRSA compared to hospital-acquired disease, throughout the 80s into the 90s, we saw a significant emergence of the hospital-associated forms of disease into the community. And we initially thought, oh, this is the hospital seeding the community. But what we learned was that we actually saw a new... um, genotype of MRSA, USA 300 strains, that were uh, phenotypically different than our, our hospital-associated MRSA strains. And that became um, identified in the 90s and into the early 2000s. Many of you know that CDC did a huge um, a public service around skin and soft tissue infections associated with MRSA, called them you know, spider bites. Everyone remember those, those days in the early you know, 2000s into the 2009, 10 area? Um, we saw skin and soft tissue infection outbreaks in professional sports teams, college athletes, so on and so forth. And patients with HIV were amongst those groups. Since that time, since around 20- 2010, we've seen a continued decline in skin and soft tissue infections as associated with like community-based outbreaks. But in populations like people who inject drugs, populations like people with HIV, we continue to see this as a common cause of skin and soft tissue infection. So NHANES data suggests that the United States colonization prevalence for staph aureus is around 32%. But for MRSA, the New England Journal of Medicine paper, uh, uh, slightly old now, used to be approximately 0.8%, less than 1%. So if you said less than 1%, generally the prevailing thought has been most people in terms of MRSA colonization, it's around 0.1%. Newer estimates, however, put it between 2 to 5% uh, in the US, with up to upwards of certain high-risk populations having potentially up to 60% intermittent colonization at some point in their life. So if you look specifically at like a substance-using population, you're going to see that prevalence higher. But these are general estimates. And we looked at clinical isolates in Baltimore, Atlanta, Minnesota, and you can see a variety of different uh, community-associated MRSA, that USA 300 strain, varied depending on where you were throughout the city in the early 2000s. Scott Fricken from CDC actually published that work. And as a result of that, in, after 2010, many of us in HIV began looking at, including my team at, at Hopkins, where is colonization occurring? Is it simply nares or are we missing a lot of colonization as a result of only screening the nares? And so we did a whole body surveillance evaluation and found that many people were indeed colonized in the nares in our HIV clinic. This was a study of 500 people uh, that I led. 9.2% in the nares, 9% had it in their throat. But you can see also vaginally 6.4% of women had MRSA colonization vaginally, uh, rectally 6.8%. So it was not simply the nares and depending at one point reminiscent of our current monkeypox discussion around STIs, there was considering whether or not MRSA, skin and soft tissue infection, could be sexually acquired through people having rectal colonization and subsequently leading to uh, potential transmission. That died pretty quickly. But the overall colonization prevalence in our cohort in Baltimore at that time was 15.6% of our patients. We subsequently documented transmission of that to healthcare workers. And Christine Johnson in our clinic documented a skin and soft tissue outbreak amongst individuals providing care, nurses, physicians, PAs, NPs in our practice, uh, subsequently not long after that data came out. So what are the risk factors for community-associated MRSA? You can see them listed on this particular slide here. None of this seems likely surprising. Individuals who have contact uh, uh, in close confined quarters Athletic teams, sexual transmission, again, was possible and documented. Um, Daycare centers, persons who use drugs, uh, people with recent hospitalizations. But the CDC came out with a mnemonic called the five C's of MRSA, crowding, contact, cleanliness, contaminated surfaces, and compromised skin. I would add to that, based on our work that we did, both correctional settings as well as compromised immunity. So make that seven C's. So, and we're going to talk more about the risk factors in patients with HIV, and this is the data that kind of began to emerge in that 2010 into 2015 kind of time frame, Um, and most of this goes without um, surprise, but lower CD4 count, and we're going to come back to that that point and high viral load, hand in glove there, Uh, recent hospital admission, uh, again, noting the fact that community-associated MRSA was now seeding the hospital during this time, So that recent hospitalization increased the risk of skin and soft tissue infection as a clinical presentation with MRSA. Uh, Beta-lectam antibiotic use, um, routine hands-on contact with customers at work. So if you were in the service industry, you had a greater chance of developing MRSA if you lived with HIV. And then lack of Bactrim prophylaxis. So it did seem to see some of those early studies suggesting that Bactrim prophylaxis actually led to reduced likelihood of infection. And we got a whole other list, including um, men who have sex with men, increased risk of uh, MRSA, uh, skin and soft tissue infection. Anyone who, is, uh, who had methamphetamine use, anyone who is known to have MRSA um, infection or colonization within the last 12 months. So all that put together led us to a recently published meta-analysis from 31 studies with over 1400 MRSA events with 17,000 people living with HIV. And most of what we learned from those earlier studies were confirmed. Previous hospitalization, prior antibiotic use, particularly beta-lactam antibiotics, CD4 count, but this added CD4 stage C classification, so opportunistic infections, really low CD4 count. Skin lesions, so any open wound or sore. So again, think uh, our persons who might be um, using parenteral drugs, uh, injection drug use, as well as MRSA colonization, was confirmed among people with HIV in this meta-analysis. But why? And so this paper came out in 2021 that looked at interferon gamma CD4 count responses were muted in patients in patients with HIV. And they actually found lower IL-12 as well as IL-15 levels uh, amongst patients who had these muted CD4 responses. There was no def- defects in CD8 responses when patients had MRSA. So the authors concluded that interferon gamma CD4-based um, CD4 response is essential for the prevention of initial and recurrent MRSA infections. So the, what's, what's happening there is we're, we're getting lower interferon gamma production, and therefore, as a result, we're not activating the immune response directing toward MRSA because of lower CD4 counts. It's a great paper from PLUS. I would encourage you to take a look if this is something that interests you. Because we do see patients progress beyond skin and soft tissue infection into uh, other related disease, including bacteremia, sepsis, pneumonia, necrotizing fasciitis. Uh, This is an example of, of a common clinical presentation Uh, of this particular uh, patient living with HIV in our clinic. Um, uh, Again, you can see the obviously taunt, raised borders, fluctuant, lesion, swelling into the dorsal of the hand. Interestingly enough, an analysis uh, from UCLA identified that strain type, however, so if it was USA 300, 400, or other types, was not associated with treatment failure nor 30-day mortality in hospitalized patients. Um, with the hospital acquired infection, even if it was community associated disease. So that was an interesting finding. It's a little old and dated now, but um, so we couldn't really use strain type to guide therapy is the, is the point really. Um, so considerations of clinical management, very painful, disfiguring, associated with MRSA transmission to others and recurrence is quite common and particularly recurrence in our patients living with HIV. So what do we do about it? Um, So CDC recommends after a thorough H&P and and risk factor evaluation, we consider the differential diagnosis, uh, obviously including the potential for necrotizing fasciitis if symptoms warrant. Uh, For fluctuant abscesses, they recommend incision and drainage. Now, many of our outpatient clinics, our HIV outpatient clinic, do not overwhelmingly support the incision and drainage within our clinic. I know that it was not popular um uh in the, the early 2010s 2015 period of time for us to close down a room in order to do this because of the cleaning protocols and the like after for potential colonization and we we had an outbreak amongst our clinical team uh, amongst uh, our our uh, patients so we kind of stopped that in our clinic so what i'm saying is if you can do it it's great intervention for the patient prevents them from going to the er but if not uh, an emergency department or, or acute care visit to obtain this would be perfect. Remain, remember that from an IND, after the IND and you have an open wound, you wanna remove the pus and obtain the culture of the wound margins. You, in this case, in the instance of MRSA, you don't wanna send them a big gob of the, the pustular material, the purulent material. You want to actually take clean wound margins when you send that culture for the patient. Um, Consider individual patient risk factors as well as the community and hospital epidemiology to determine your empiric antimicrobial therapy. Um, Generally, the rule of thumb is PO um, antimicrobial therapy, trying to cover based on your your local epidemiology, but also the patient's individual potential uh, options for, um, for exposure as well as prior antimicrobial therapy. Generally, we treat for seven to 10 days, uh, but I've seen data looking at whether or not that can be shortened to up to five days. Um, Again, that's personal preference. There's no hard or fast rule on the duration of therapy. If you get a really good IND and you're able to actually remove as much pus as possible, there's considerable debate about whether or not antimicrobial therapy is even required. Um, So you you can, that's a personal preference and, and And I will just show you what the CDC guidelines on that say. I generally have my patients follow up in 24 to 48 hours after the incision and drainage because we've clearly packed that wound and we wanna teach them and make sure they're understanding how to continually pack it for the next few days. Um, Also the anticipatory guidance that they need to receive around the packing and, and unpacking of the wound and whether or not someone can help them do it at home is, is really critical and important. Because if they, if they do a poor job, um, the likelihood of um, uh, recurrence and, and worsening and, and failure of, of, of treatment can occur. So pretty basic procedure after it's, uh, um, you, you can see that on this slide here that we can, easily do it. The duration of packing, I wanted to point that out. There's actually no specific recommendation. We at Hopkins, our general rule of thumb is until the wound was closed and you can no longer get the packing material in the hole that you created. Um, but for, depending on the patient, depending on their CD4 count, um, that would vary greatly. Uh, we've had um, wounds, depending on their size, that we, were be, we would pack for uh, uh, 10 days or more. And so packing would go actually beyond the, the duration of antimicrobial therapy. Come on. Here's an, another example of what we're talking about, just for those who might not have seen this in clinic of a wound. Uh, this was not the patient that we saw before. Um, he ultimately had to have um, a removal of that third toe uh, in that circumstance. But this is a patient who's post-IND. Uh, you can see the wick there coming out of the wound. Um, and we we're, we're teach the family or the patient to pack that wound, and they literally get follow-up um, in seven days after that first couple day visit in clinic. I tend to mark the area of cellulitis, uh, you know, and you can see that it's been marked in this particular foot as well, although it's harder to see, um, because the patient's showered and other things, uh, around the toes, uh, there that, but it's, it's rubbed off here. So the management, nothing's much has changed since the 2014 IDSA guidelines on the management of skin and soft tissue infection. Unfortunately, there's not been a lot of Overall progress here. Uh, patients who have, uh, you know, uh, paramount symptoms, uh, if they have a fluctuant wound, uh, they recommend um, uh, incision and drainage. So the first thing is, if, if they have yellow or white center, a center point or a head, or there's draining pus, you want to do an uh, to drain the lesion, send so wound cultures uh, for culture and susceptibility, uh, advise the patient on wound care and hygiene, and then discuss follow-up plan. Uh, and if there are severe symptoms, uh, local symptoms, or there's immunosuppression, which in the case of our patients, you want to consider antimicrobial therapy that co- includes MRSA coverage. So here's, here's that recommended antimicrobial therapy. There we go. It's a little harder to see. But um, many of you listed these agents correctly. So plindamycin, is, is listed here. This is in um, the, the order of, of recommendation from the CDC. Now, if you are doing clindamycin, you need to know whether or not your lab does a D test for inducible clindamycin resistance. And so you need to make sure you can evaluate whether or not you're being offered um, that testing. And if they're not, just make sure if you're seeing a lot of MRSA infections that you're testing. If a D test is positive, then clindamycin would be an agent that's going to fail in that particular circumstance. Um, the tetracyclines you can see are listed here, um, and you can see some recommendations, activity against group A strep, a common cause of cellulitis. So there's some great, uh, is unknown. So, but they do li- list this as their second preferred agent uh, if you're thinking Staph aureus or um, potential for MRSA. We used a lot of Bactrim uh, in our particular practice setting, it generally worked very well. Um, because we did see a, a fair amount of D-test positivity with our clindamycin uh, isolates, um, upwards of 25%, at least at the height of when we were seeing all of our skin and soft tissue infections. And so we did use a lot of, of trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. Obviously, we don't use a lot of rifampin because of drug-drug interactions in our patients. And then finally, down at the bottom, you can see linazolid on the list um, after consultation with an infectious disease specialist. But obviously, we're giving it in such a short duration that myelosuppression and and peripheral neuropathy is unlikely to be a major concern. So uh, the judicious use of antibiotics is most important. So if you do think you can uh, treat the patient and there's great follow-up, you might not have to use antimicrobials. If it's a low risk patient, high CD4 count, no other uh, immunocompromising conditions, not diabetic, um, that might be an option for you in your practice. Transmission to healthcare providers I already mentioned, so make sure you're using appropriate PPE and cleaning your space um, in your clinic. And then the big question comes up in the clinical conundrum that's not still not been answered is to decolonize or not. Uh, for patients with recurrent skin and soft tissue infections, you saw that there's a lot of body sites that will be colonized. So it moves beyond just trying to decolonize the nares and moves into actually thinking about, you know potentially mupirocin in the nares, but also chlorhexidine showers. If anyone's in a group home or group setting or congregate setting with others that may share risk factors, the, 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 the benefit of individually decolonizing a single person in a, in a shared communal space is, is very, very low. We actually did a randomized controlled trial um, trying to evaluate, trying to do whole house decolonization for MRSA in patients with HIV. And let's just say when patients were randomized to a household arm in which they were coming in and going to test everyone for HIV based on their, uh, for MRSA based on their HIV status, we had a significant amount of dropout in that study once the patient was randomized to the home decolonization arm. Uh, so we published a methods of home based decolonization for MRSA paper, uh, trying to determine what the best possible approach would be. There is one randomized controlled trial out of the UK and the small UK village that looked at what be- what's the best approach. And it's listed for you there that showed that chlorhexidine, gluconate for washing, intranasal mupersin, and rifampicin and doxy were required to fully eradicate in patients who had significant um, issues. And just um, so lots of issues going on there. Uh, but in terms of recurrent infections, typically Bactrim double strength POBID for seven days with chlorhexidine shower and mupuricin ointment twice daily in the nose for patients who remain colonized. So, thank you very much. Happy to answer any questions. Yes, he, he had an uh, amputation of his third toe and is still a patient in the clinic today doing well.
0: Right. I was wondering uh, why on your question, trimethyrum and sulfa wasn't an option. I think your points were well made that it doesn't have great staff coverage, but I found that at least personally it works pretty well. And it sounds like you guys are using that yeah. pretty regularly. And the thing is like two double strength twice a day. Is that how you do it or yeah. what? Two double strength? Well, particularly
1: in, in patients who um, you know, have a significant infection, right. we, we are more aggressive.
0: Right, and one other thing with the I and D, at least, is what I do, and see if you do the same. But say if you have a fairly large, fluctuant area, you do the initial incision. Then we usually take a hemostat and break up. The, break it up. That's really oh, important, that's a, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's a, so yeah, it's not just the
1: cut; it's the cut with the with the hemostat and actually exploring for loculations and getting in there, if you will.
0: Right. Okay. All right, so now this question is, isn't packing no longer recommended after IND? Mm. Sort of depends,
1: doesn't it? I think it does depend. Um, that's a, it's a really great point. I think, you know, we still do, um, but I would, um, and we saw really great wound healing and wound, wound culture uh, conversion with treatment, but, um, you know, I think the data is, is emerging that it's not the best necessarily the best practice.
0: Right. Here's a question about a second antibiotic in case there's strep present. Um, What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, expanding and covering a more uh, a broad spectrum, providing a broader spectrum coverage is, is always a potential consideration, uh, particularly in our injection drug using population that may have, you know, including gram, also considering gram negatives. We are seeing much more skin and soft tissue infection to have multi-pathogen, um, uh, particularly in our wounds from our IDU patients. Right. And so, uh, yeah, you have to know the local epidemiology, you have to know the local um, antimicrobial resistance patterns, and your organisms. And you have to know, um, yeah, particularly we see in our patients who've been recently hospitalized, expanding coverage to cover and thinking beyond just either gram-positive organisms to include gram-negatives. That's why culture, if you can get a culture, is so important.
0: Right. I mean, usually if it's a, again, going back to that classic fur uncle that you, indeed, it's got yeah. such a characteristic it does. purulence. I don't know how to, it looks like a River Very of maroon, shined, maroon, pus. Yes, say, yeah, uh, gross. Yeah. But
1: yeah. I, 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 had a um a patient of mine in the clinic one day who came in and goes, "Hey, I need to show you this," and grabbed his arm and squeezed it, and the pus literally missed my eye by about four inches. Um, so 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 it was quite a fun day in clinic that day. Yeah,
0: and <laughs> yeah, that led to a fun cleanup. I guess. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, What's the rationale for wound margins and not glob of pus? I'm not sure I understand that.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So our microbiology team, and you know um, Karen Carroll, um, who's the director of our microbiology lab, and, and I have talked about this a lot and, and the thought was, you know of course, can you, in, in, with the right bacterial load, find organism in, in the purulent material? Yes, but that's dead cells and dead you know oftentimes you'll have. Potentially, depending on how long the abscess has been in evolution and present, you might not be able to find a lot of bacterial load in that. And so they prefer cleaning that out and getting rid of that, giving them actual wound margins from the micro lab perspective, because it increases the sensitivity uh, and diagnostic yield. Yeah,
0: I just usually send my gloves down to micro afterwards. Just the whole thing. Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding.
1: But yeah, I think a lot of people think, oh, it's pussy. Let me take a swab of the pus and send the pus. But when you're when MRSA is in your differential, it's, it you should clean the wound and and make sure you're getting wound margins. It's not you can't you can't also send both. I mean, if you're that concerned,
0: I, I haven't really had much of a problem of it coming back positive for MRSA. It's yeah. usually. Yeah. Um, how do you manage the pain with the IND, especially if you're doing that hemostat spread torture therapy?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, anticipatory guidance—that's where you start. Um, uh, uh, someone who's going to help with the patient because you obviously have patients in our clinic, you know, who may not be virally suppressed, and you've, you're doing an IND on patients. And, and if you're not, if you've not used, you know, judicious use of lidocaine, um, the patient will feel it quite quite nicely. So I, number one, I. In, avoiding cardiac toxicity, I use as, you know, as much lidocaine as possible to numb the area before. Now, once you start to express the pus, there's no, there's no amount of lidocaine that's going to help that. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I make sure all sharps are out of the way and they've been removed from the area before we do any expression of anything. I, I, I've seen, um, a couple of folks who will slice and begin to, to kind of start to press with the scalpel in their hand. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, it's, it's a sharp injury waiting to happen. So just making sure that, you know, you tell the patient, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to push and this is going to hurt after all sharps have been removed from the, the space is really important. Um,
0: My, yeah. And then also you didn't the say face shield. It, yeah, face Absolutely. Yep.
1: hundred percent. If you're, yeah. if you're doing an abscess with an IND and you're going to be expressing it, coverage of your face is essential.
0: Okay. We'll wrap up with these two. There are a lot of great questions here. Um, uh, basically, uh, three most recent abscess drainage showed MRSA with only the first sensitive to Bactrum. The only second was only sensitive to tetracycline. The third to Clinda. Um, I assume that's from different patients, but um, how often do you see this resistance profile of, for like community-acquired MRSA like USA 300?
1: Yeah, so the typical pattern is, is sensitivity to trimethoprim sulfa. Um, and unless your lab is doing a D-test, you, you have no idea whatsoever whether or not there's inducible clindamycin resistance um, uh, that may be present. So, so you've got to evaluate that. But, but oftentimes you'll see a tetracycline sensitivity, a clindamycin sensitivity, and a trimethoprim sulfa sensitivity. And, um, and so if the patient's routinely on Bactrim, so for, for prophylaxis, you know, I'm not increasing that dose. I'm choosing a different agent because obviously that coverage didn't cover the organism that they're dealing with right now. So, so um, I, I use clindamycin successfully a lot. The problem with that BID dosing is I also see C. diff occurring. Yeah, that you know, was the
0: other question they asked about, right? Um,
1: very frequently in those patients.
0: Yeah. And with longer use of trim sulfur, you can also get C diff, but it's more. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jason. Thank you. Very practical.